You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Proven Principles for Good Health, Episode 1 with Diana Burnett. Greetings and welcome to all our friends from Amazing Discoveries around the world. I want to thank you for tuning in today. Our message of health today, I believe, will be of vital importance and interest to every one of us because as a physician, I see that every human being that is on this earth has a problem or a concern with their health. And in today's world, we want to have surety of how to find good health. There are proven principles in the Bible. Sometimes when we think about God, we think that he's just interested in our spiritual well-being. But God is as interested in every part of our, our person, our physical as well as our spiritual and our mental. In fact, I want to read a scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 that tells us the importance of our health to God. It says, And the very God of peace sanctify you, and the word that is used is holy. Our whole body, wants God wants to sanctify us. And then it goes on to say, And I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your desire? That God will preserve you? And maybe you're suffering today from some illness or something that you want help for. I want to turn you to the Lord. And I pray that our message today, the physiology of addiction, will touch each of our hearts. And before we get started into this presentation, let's take a, a moment to ask the Lord to bless our talk. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the assurance that you give us that you care about every part of us, that when we hurt, you hurt, and that your interest in our physical and mental, spiritual health is of great importance, and you want to preserve it blameless. Be with us today, and may the message that you have for us today Touch the hearts and help us to find a clearer path to heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our talk today is one of the first parts of a series that we have, and we're going to be looking at the physiology of addiction. I also want to put a subtitle in it because what we're going to look at when we talk about addiction is the king of the mind. Who's the ruler in your mind? And who is it that's making decisions? Sometimes we do things and we don't even know why we do it. And that's what we want to look at in a very surface way today, but I believe in a way that will help each and every one of us. Let's look at what addiction is. And so here we have a graphic of a head that's full of addictions. And addictions are very broad. Have you heard? Well, everybody's got to have some vice. Well, that's kind of the philosophy. But I think that that's really an excuse that we mention 
because every one of us find things that we struggle with giving up. And so we want to justify that we have things that we're struggling with. And it's like, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody has to have a vice. But let's look at the definition of vice. And in fact, the very word in Latin means a person's inclination or their proclivity, which means your tendency, what you easily fall into. It's like instead of um, paddling upstream, it's much easier to go downstream. And so addiction is going with things that are just easier for you to do. Maybe it's not what you like to do, but you get trapped in it. It also means to devote or to surrender oneself to something habitually. It's something that you continue to do over and over again, or obsessively. Now, some habits are good, so the word habitually doesn't really connotate what we want to think about with addiction. But obsessively, sometimes when we have something that's obsessive, it's even something that's annoying to ourselves. So it gives a little more of a connotation that it's not something that's desired. Another definition of addiction is something that's strong, and it's a strong and harmful need to regularly do something or have something. And the key word here really emphasizes that an addiction is something that's harmful. That's a key word. It's harmful. So when we look at an addicted person, what we're looking at is a person that's a slave or a servant to an object. could be an object. It could even be an attitude. You can be addicted to being impatient. You can be addicted to being angry. It doesn't have to be just a substance. But the thing that I want to emphasize is that addiction is slavery. You come into a position where you do things you may not even want to do it, but you can't break out. In the Bible, addiction is described as sin. In fact, let's look at what it says in the book of John, chapter 8 and verse 34. It says, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. We could substitute the word addiction for sin and read it, whosoever commits his or her addiction is a servant of addiction. So as we're talking today about the physiology of sin, I don't want to make it sound like we can explain sin, explain its existence, because really there is no excuse for sin. When God created all of his universe, all of his created beings, in his great love, he provided everything possible for our happiness. Nothing was left out. In fact, we're told in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2 and verse 7, it is called the mystery of iniquity. We cannot explain why when someone had everything that was needed for their absolute happiness and pleasure, that they would want to change it. It's called a mystery. But what we do want to look at is what is happening in the mind and how we can break free from it. 
Now, when we're talking about addiction, and even if we're talking about sin, is there anyone that has ever been born into this world who has not struggled with the issues of sin? Let's look and see the answer to the Bible, because some people might say, oh, I don't have any addictions. I don't have any sin. But that's not what it tells us in the Bible. We're told in Romans chapter 3, in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We might be able to compare ourselves to other people, and, oh, I'm not like that person out there that's homeless and and passed out on the sidewalk and, you know, has their drug addiction or has this slavery to some other vice. I'm not like that. We might feel perfect compared to them. But in the perfect character of God, if we as humans compared ourselves, the truth is we all have fallen short of his glory and we all sin. But that's not where God wants to leave us. And in the book of Revelation... The chapters that describe the churches of God, every one of the churches that is described, they have a promise. And one of my favorite ones is in Revelation 3, verse 21. And what it says here is that to him that overcomes, they overcome this addiction, they overcome this slavery to sin, the promise is from God that he will grant us to sit with Jesus in his throne, even as, what he's saying, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Now, this might not make a lot of sense to you, but as we go through and look at our talk today, I believe that we could come back to this verse after we go through it, and you will understand this promise that God is giving us. So, the promise has to do with the throne. So to understand what this promise is, let's talk about a throne. Let me ask you the question, who sits on a throne? Well, a king sits on the throne. This is a picture of King George V. He lived in the 1800s into the 1900s, so he's really a recent king. So as we think about a king, we want to understand the importance and significance of a king. We want to ask, what defines a king? Why is a king different than maybe his subjects? Well, first of all, The king is the ruler. He's the master. He has authority. He has control. He's the ultimate figure. He makes decisions. He makes rules. And he makes the laws that govern his subjects. Well, when he gives his orders, anybody can give orders. But what makes the difference for, from a good king and someone who just goes out and tells others, do this, do that. In order to have power and to have authority that's effective, you have to be able to enforce the obedience. And so a king comes with equipment, whether it be his army or 
other punishments that he's going to inflict if you break his rules. So it's important that there's enforcement of obedience. Overall, we would say that a king is the highest power in whatever kingdom we're looking at. The Bible tells us that there's one true king. And as we look at this graphic here, I want you to notice that the picture of Jesus standing there in the middle, there's a lamb and there's a lion, and then there's Jesus in a white robe in the middle. All the time, Jesus has always been the one and only true king. At creation, he was the king of all created things. So we see there at the beginning of the timeline, creation. And we're going to look a little bit deeper at creation. But something happened, and we know that man failed in obedience. And so a whole different system had to come in. And the, the plan of salvation where Jesus would become a lamb was given right there in Genesis. And so as we're following this timeline, you notice on the red bar that the lamb at the end of that time period in 31 AD, Jesus was sacrificed as the lamb. Was he the king then? He was the king as a lamb just as sure as he's a king when as a lion. But his picture with the white robe tells a different part that he's playing as he is looking at our redemption. And that occurred from in the blue, the light blue bar there, or the dark blue bar, excuse me. From 457 BC, we were told that Jesus was going to act as a high priest. And so we know that when Jesus, as a high priest, right before he comes back to receive his people. He is acting in the priestly form, so he has the robe. But when he comes the second time, he is going to come as the king of kings. He will then be the lion. So if we look at this a little bit differently, I want to show you what happened, how man lost the position that he was in in creation. The fall of man in creation happened because Adam and Eve disobeyed God's law. And when that happened, his character, his glory was changed from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was made in the image of God. But when sin came in, he was no longer in God's image. And one of the things that man lost was a sound mind. The mind became broken. And instead of supreme love for God, man's attachment went to Satan. And we can literally say that man was in love with Satan. So in order to be restored, the things that God had to, has to accomplish in us is first that his love is restored in us to him. And that was in the promise, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to Satan. Enmity is hatred. And that is our first promise. That God would break this power of sin that has a hold on us. It's a promise that God will say, I will break that. I will cause you to hate the actions of sin. 
the way I made you to be. And the sound mind needs, that had been broken because of sin needs to be restored. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, we're told the gifts that God gives us is not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that is translated, the word sound mind, as self-control. And that is what we want, self-control. And God promises to give that back to us. And in Philippians 2, one of my favorite verses, Philippians 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Those words are God's creative words. When he said in the beginning in Genesis, when he said, let there be light and let there be air and let there be separation in the waters. That very word, let there be. In Philippians, when he says, let this mind be in you, it is God commanding that power of creation to say to you, let the mind of Jesus be in you. That's the gift he has for us in restoring us. And ultimately, what we see will happen is that God's glory is restored that was um, reflective in man. I call it the full moon principle. Does the moon have any light of itself? There is no light in the moon, only as it reflects the sun. And the greatest glory of the moon is in a full moon. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, this is how God tells us it happens. Beholding as in a glass the, the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Some of you might have heard about mirror neurons, and this is something that scientists have discovered in recent history, and I won't go into all the details, but they have discovered that in man's mind, there are neurons that work by watching something happen. So when it's, uh, they discovered it as they were looking at um, monkeys and eating peanuts, and they had them all hooked up to electrodes, and certain um, neurons would fire. And then the researchers took a break, and one of the researchers was eating some peanuts, eating his lunch, and the monkeys were still hooked up. As the monkey was watching the researcher eat his lunch, the same neurons fired in that monkey that fired when he was eating the, the peanuts. And so what they discovered is even when we're watching something, it is being recorded in our brain the way that our mind should work. So as we look at Jesus and we look at the character of his life, the formation of his character will be transposed into our brain and we will become like him again. Now, the opposite happens as well, so we have to be careful because when we behold evil, when we watch movies, when we watch certain behavior patterns from other people, those are going to be imprinted on us too. It's just like a child, how they learn how to behave. Families act alike because they watch each other, and so they begin to act alike. So we want to put our focus on Jesus, and it is his promise that he will change us. So let's get back to this um, idea of the king of the mind. And I want to bring up a little game, 
Some of you might have played this. It's, it's been a rather popular one. It's called King of the Mountain. The goal of this game is to conquer the highest place and to become the king. Now, it could be a stack of hay. It could be a snow mound. It could just be a, a mound of dirt. But in this game, the idea is to get on the top, the peak. That's the throne. You want to siege the throne. And so whoever gets up there, then the object is, for anyone else who is there, to become the king and to displace the person who made it to the top. What it really is, is a power battle. They have actually taken this game out of some schools and other places because it can be rather violent. Because how does a king on the top of the mountain, how is he overthrown? One of the most powerful ways is by brute force. And so if you're stronger than the person that's made it to the hill, you can just literally throw them off. There could be kicking, there could be pulling. So it could be rather violent. But is there any other way to overthrow a king besides power? If you think about it, how, do, how does one nation overcome another? Many times we think, well, whoever has the greatest army, the strongest army. But it's not necessarily in brute force, in muscle strength. It's in strategy. And so many of the ways that a king takes over, or one kingdom takes over another kingdom, is by excellent strategy. The Bible tells us that there was a time that man wanted a different type of king than what they had. The story is found in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. What was going on is that for all the time that Israel was a nation, they did not have a king like most of the other nations. What they had was judges, and they were under God as the ultimate king. And so they would go to the judge, and he would make decisions, and there was consultations you know, with God, and, and that's how the rulership went on. But as the children of Israel looked around at the other nations, they saw this man as a king and all of the glory that was associated with him. And they thought, you know, we want to be like the other nations. We want a man to be our king. Well, we're told in this story that Samuel was very hurt. In fact, when he went to the Lord and he cried out to the Lord, God said to him, Samuel, they're not rebelling against you. They're rejecting me. Don't take it personal. You're going to let them do what they want. Give them a king. Give them a man. But before you have this happen, I want you to warn them what it means when a man rules over a man. Tell them that they will become slaves. Everything they own will belong to the king. Their children will belong to the king. They will belong to the king. In short, they will be slaves. And that's what happened. Let's look at this graphic that depicts God's order of authority. God was always king. That's who God is. He is the higher power. He is the highest power. 
and over all of creation, over man, who is the lower power. And here on this earth, when he created us in the garden, he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he said to man, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. That wasn't to be a tyrant or a dictator, but it was more like a nurturing shepherd. Care for it, be tender, and keep it in order. So that was the dominion. God is always the highest power over his created beings who are the lower power. So when the Israelites wanted a man for a king, let's look at what happened. What they said is, Let's have a man who is really the lower power. Let's give him the higher power over us. Was that a good plan? Would that have worked? What's wrong? What if you have a very good man, a good, kind-hearted man? Would it be good to give him this power over other human beings? Let me tell you of a study that was done recently. In Switzerland, they did this research to see what would happen on the human brain when power was given to a person. They invented a game. They called it the dictator game. And what they said is, okay, you can choose any salary for these people that are under you. You can either give them more money and have less for yourself. There's a set amount of money. But if you give them more money, then you're going to have less. What they found is that those who were dishonest to begin with really usurped the power. And they gave the people under them very little pay and kept the money for them, for themselves. But the interesting thing that happened was that people that are typically kind-hearted and generous more humble, on the humble side, that as they received the power to take more for themselves or give more to the other person, that they actually changed to become more like the corrupt people and took more for themselves. In fact, as they looked at what was happening, they saw that the feelings of power change the brain just the way cocaine changes the brain. One little taste of power becomes addictive. And they found that when humans are given power, it is the corrupt nature that comes out. They become more arrogant, and they become more impatient. Just like with cocaine, there is a reaction in the brain that releases dopamine that gives them the sense of euphoria, a sense of well-being, and a sense of more desire for that substance. So they want more and more power. I thought that was very interesting. So when you take a man whose nature is corrupt to begin with, and you give them a taste of power, they're going to only become more and more powerful in dictatorship. Well, all of this problem had to start somewhere. In fact, the very first addict that we have in all of created history is in Isaiah 14. 
this is what happened, how it came in. We're told that Lucifer was the son of the morning. He was one of the highest angels in heaven. And something in his heart gave him a desire for power. He said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. In fact, he went so far that he said, I will be like the Most High. In fact, what you could really say is that he wanted to be higher than God. He wanted to be the highest power. So let's go back and review that um, slide that shows us that God's plan, that he is the highest power over all of creation, over the angels, over all created the, all the created world. But what Saint, Satan wanted was to usurp the power of God. And as we see on this um, slide, that Lucifer, the lower power, wanted to be above the higher power. And what we're told happened when this contention rose up in the heart of Satan, and he convicted a third of the angels that this was a good plan. We're told that there was war in heaven. In Revelation 12, it gives us the, a little bit of the details, and it says that Satan was cast out of heaven, and he came to this earth and went to make war with a certain group of people. And we're told it was the remnant of God's people, her seed, the church, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So the war that started in heaven is here on earth. And if just right here we stopped and thought about that, the war in heaven started over who has the power. And so when you're thinking of your own life and you rethink of what goes on worldwide, it is always an issue of authority, proper authority. Who is to submit to who? And it is Satan's plan to get all of this world to follow his path and overrule the authority of God. So what is the mountain that Satan has to conquer? What he is after is our minds, because that's our control center. And if he can conquer our minds, he can control us. He does not want us to belong to the kingdom of God. He wants to break that and have us his subjects. So this leads me to wanting to explain to you some things about the brain. The brain is the physical part of the mind, but the mind is how it works. So your brain, that is your control center, is only three pounds as an adult. It's a very small mass of tissue, but it does all of the functions of your whole body. Without your brain, you don't function. You could have your arm cut off. You could lose some other parts of your body. We all know that people have appendixes taken out. Some people even have spleens taken out or different parts of their organs, and they still survive. But you will never survive without your brain. So this small mass is one of the most complex objects in the whole universe. 
Last year, in 2014, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, put out an initiative to map the brain. Just like we had the Human Genome Project, he wants to have the Human Brain Project. And so millions of dollars are being allocated to study the functions of the brain. And technology is being um, innovated to try to sort through this complex brain to see how we work. I don't think that we can ever even scratch the surface. The more we know, what I'm telling you today is not even kindergarten. It's almost like pre-kindergarten now compared to what scientists are discovering. But what they know is that, in general, the human brain has 80 billion neurons, 80 billion cells. That's equivalent to how many stars are in the Milky Way. And that all fits within this little sphere of our skull on our head. And have you ever heard that we only use 10% of our brain? We've heard that, but that's really not true. Every cell in the brain has a function and works. One of the big things about the brain is that it has memory. It can store every experience that we go through in life. There are new connections from one neuron to another neuron made every day. In fact, one neuron can have anywhere from 1,000 up to 10,000 different connections to other neurons. So if you multiply 80 billion neurons by 10,000, can you imagine how many different connections are in the brain? You know, when we have all our technology, if you have a stereo system, and now with our computer systems, we have cords everywhere, and they just get tangled. But the way God compacted our brain together, and that all of these trillions, multi-trillions of neurons can still be organized and think, that is a miracle. Nothing can match our brain. So there are anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 different connections, and there are over 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your brain that could circle the Earth five times. Isn't that amazing? I, I just find this incredible. So our brain, we couldn't even begin to think to put a computer together like the, like the brain. Let's look at some of the basic parts of the brain. I've got just a schematic up here that shows our four basic lobes. In the front of your forehead, it's reasonably called the frontal lobe. And then behind that, a little bit behind, we have the parietal lobe. And down through the side parts where we have our temples, and that's called, called the temples because the lobe under it is your temporal lobe. And then back here at the base of your skull, we have what's called the occipital lobe. Our brain has some other parts to it. As you can see, the little stem that comes down and goes into your spinal column, that's called your brain stem. And then there's another important part called the cerebellum, which mostly has to do with our movement and our balance. But let's go back and talk about the frontal lobe and the other supporting lobes. In our frontal lobe, that is where our thought processes happen. That is where your decisions happen. So it's very key 
to the whole overall function of the brain. The parietal lobes, the occipital lobes, and the temporal lobe, all of those are that take messages in through your ears, through your eyes, through your tongue, all your senses, your five senses, have integration nerves that go through these lobes and then into the deeper part of the brain. And all your perception um, and your recognition of faces, these are in these different lobes. And as I mentioned, the cerebellum is for movement and coordination, and the brainstem is, is the, uh, the pathway to the rest of the body and brings in messages from the rest of the body. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper. As I say that your senses bring uh, messages into the temporal, parietal, and occipital lobe, they then go down into what is called the limbic system. Now, the limbic system, as depicted here, you can't, if you'd have to slice right down through the middle of the brain, and then you would see it deep in the center of the brain. The limbic system has some critical functions for us. The first thing that I want to mention is that there are multiple brain structures. And I'm not going to emphasize these. It's incredible how even the limbic system works. You've got the amygdala. You've got the hippocampus. You've got the thalamus and the hypothalamus. But they are involved with emotion. That is the big part of the limbic system. Your feelings are centered here in the limbic system. It is also our motivational center. It's what makes you want to get up and go to work for the day. If there's something going on in your limbic system and you have no drive, there's some imbalance going on that has muted the limbic system. It is also responsible for all of our biological drives. That's particularly in one part called the hypothalamus. And we'll go into a little more detail a little bit farther down. But overall, what I want you to see is your feelings, your biological drives, and your memory making is right here in the hypothalamus. The memories that are embedded through the limbic system are more deeply embedded if it is related to a physical activity. So if you have something happen that has a high emotional impact, that is going to be recorded in your brain deeper than something that just kind of happens in passing and you don't pay a lot of attention to it. Now, there's something else that's closely associated with the limbic system, not necessarily part of it, but it works in integrated fashion, and that is called the nucleus accumbens. Now, scientists have looked at that. What they have nicknamed the nucleus accumbens is the pleasure center. We'll go into that a little bit in more detail. But let's just finish looking at the overall um, picture of the brain. And when I said that there's over 80 billion um, neurons, all these single neurons look like this. This is a single cell. So if we have our limbic system and our frontal lobe, but we want to take out one little nerve cell. So it has a body, 
and then coming off of the body. It's like little antlers, and they're called dendrites. And then you have a long cable, like an electrical cable. It's called the axon. And then it has like little antlers off of the end of it that connects to thousands of other different neurons. But right where one neuron connects to another, they don't actually touch. There is a junction there. It's called the synaptic junction. And the little knobs on the end, as you can see in that one picture, the, the little knobs there in the blue, close to the bottom center, that's a synaptic junction. But it's also called a bouton because the French scientist that first discovered the boutons, as he looked at it under the microscope, he said, oh, these look like buttons. But in French, he said, oh, these look like boutons. And so the name has stuck, and they are called boutons. What I want to show you is at this junction, the synaptic junction, where we have um, no connection. So we've got a space. So how does one cell communicate to the other? And the way that does it is through neurotransmitters. These are chemicals that relay the message from one neuron to the other neuron, and they just travel down the line. There's over a hundred different neurotransmitters that scientists have discovered today. I've got a list of just a few of them up here. Acetylcholine, GABA, serotonin. You might have heard of these, serotonin and dopamine. We all hear about those. When you're talking about depression, these are the serotonin and dopamine are key in the happiness of the brain. And then you've got glutamate and aspartate. These are actually amino acids, part of a protein structure. These neurotransmitters have different characteristics. The acetylcholine is a hot spot spark. It is actually what makes a nerve fire. But you don't always want your nerves to fire. There's times that you want them to stop. I mean, haven't you ever had an experience where your, your thoughts just keep going and you wish they could stop? We have GABA. GABA is the brakes to put the stop to this transmission. And then serotonin is responsible for a feel-good um, type of attitude. And dopamine is, it's, we could call it your rose-colored glasses. It's what makes you feel that there's value to life. The glutamate and the aspartate are called excitatory neurotransmitters because they also cause the nerve to fire. It's, it's the go pedal along with the acetylcholine. There's a scripture in the Bible that actually describes disease process. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it said, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, what does that have to do with health? Health has to do with proper communication between every cell of your body. And when that's disrupted, you're going to have bad manners. You're going to think wrong. Your cells are going to function wrong. It's like cancer. You have a normal cell and something goes wrong in the communication system and it doesn't stop growing when it's supposed to stop growing. So 
perfect communication in the neurons is very important for everything that happens in our health and in our thinking. So here's a picture that we have here of the overall nervous system. So it's not just in the brain. We've got our brain with the 80 billion um, neurons, but then they come down and through these long axons and different connections, as we can see on this graphic here, our, our nervous system goes to the very tips of our toes. And I want you to notice, you might not be able to see it real clearly, but do you notice how nerves come out and are connected to every organ of your body? It's even connected to your digestive system. So how you think is going to affect your digestion. In fact, if, have you ever eaten when you're stressed, you've gotten really bad news? and you eat and it just feels like your stomach's churning and the food doesn't digest, that's because it's all related. And what's happening in your mind affects the whole function of the body. So what we eat also, in reverse, affects our thinking. So let's go back and look at a couple of the key parts of the brain that we know are very significant with addiction. First of all, as we look at the frontal lobe, we mentioned some of its function being thinking and making decisions, but it also is the seat of judgment. It's where you have your reasoning power, your intellect. In fact, when you go to school and you learn one plus one is two, those are facts that are stored into your frontal lobe. And all of your moral judgment is right here in your frontal lobe. So I would like to say, when we look at the intellect, or we look at facts, you could also say that the laws that govern your being are here in the frontal lobe. And scientists have actually discovered that the main center of a person's drive for spirituality is centered in the frontal lobe. Another key significant role of the frontal lobe is the will. We've all heard of willpower. The willpower is what is generated. It's the energy that comes from the will. And the will is basically, you could say, your governing force because it's what decides if you're going to go right or you're going to go left. Let's look at a little bit more at part of the, hypothal uh, the limbic system. We want to look at the hypothalamus. As we look at the hypothalamus, I want you to realize that this important part of the brain is only the size of an almond. And if you remember, I said that the brain weighed three pounds. The hypothalamus is only 0.14 of an ounce. Just like one and a half tenths of an ounce. Very, very small. And yet its function has to do with all of your... Um, most important functions of the day. One of the biggest things that it does is keep your body temperature normal. In fact, if we look at women, and I think any of the women out in our audience that have gone through this process called menopause, you know, as a woman ages and her cycle begins to change and then finally stop, we call it menopause. Well, one of the symptoms that's very, very common when women go through this 
is called a hot flash. That is a problem with the hypothalamus. And we won't get into it here. But women, I just want you to know, that little piece of tissue is what's causing your problems with those hot flashes. Now, this little piece of tissue is important for all of your animal drives. That sounds kind of degrading. We have animal drives, but I'm a human. By animal drives, what I mean is your survival instincts. It's everything that you have to do to survive. It's preservation of self. In some of our modern times, scientists that have looked at this have actually talked about it in terms of, you've heard the word ego. This is where ego is centered. It's where everything is to protect who I am. It has to do with your hunger center. If you don't eat, you're not going to survive. So the hypothalamus gives you the drive to eat. You need to drink. So it is your thirst center. It is what causes you to want to drink water. Our mating drive is also in the hypothalamus. Your desire to procreate. The need for shelter. The need to, for protection. And as I mentioned about preservation of self, this protection, this shelter, is both temporal and in a way um, more intellectual. Because if you live out in an environment and it's either too hot or too cold, there's rain, there's snow, we have to protect ourselves. So we build a shelter. But it's also that we want to protect ourselves. We build basically a shelter around ourselves. This is who I am, and that's why we're offended when someone criticizes us, because they're tearing down who we are. And in the hypothalamus, we want to protect who we are. The freedom for movement is in the hypothalamus. When you have um, a criminal, and they are put in prison, and then they continue to act up, what is one of the things they do to try to change their behavior? Don't they put them in isolation and in confinement? It affects the hypothalamus when you cannot freely move, when you're trapped. That's an issue with the hypothalamus, being able to move freely. Now, one of the other points I want to mention, it is that you have a drive to avoid pain. It is not part of our human system to just go out and say, boy, what can I do today to inflict pain on me? What we all want to do is what can we do today to get rid of pain, emotional pain, mental pain, as well as physical pain. What would it be like if you didn't have this? Would you ever be able to learn how to avoid things that could harm you. In fact, when a child, let's say you have a wood stove in your home, and you have a little infant that's learning to walk and learning to crawl, and you tell them, don't touch the stove. Don't touch that wood stove. It's hot. Are they going to understand what you're telling them? When they take and touch that hot stove one time and burn themselves, there's an immediate withdrawal. 
we learn obedience through pain. This is part of why the scripture says he learned obedience through suffering. We'll get into that in another talk that comes up after this. But as you think about avoidance of pain, I want to mention here that even Jesus, when he came to this earth, he fought against his hypothalamus because everything in his being did not want to go through the crucifixion. It was so powerful in him. He put his hands to the ground and tried to keep himself from being pulled deeper into this oppression that he was going into. And he cried out to his father, you can do anything. If possible, take this away. That was Jesus' human nature saying, I don't want this pain. I can't handle this pain. So even the perfect Son of God had this reaction of avoidance of pain. Now we want to go on. And remember I mentioned the nucleus accumbens. This now is not part of the limbic system, but it's closely related to it. And it was discovered back in the 1950s. There were two scientists that had this hypothesis. As they found this little piece of tissue, they said, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we give a negative feeling to that tissue. So they have electrodes hooked it up to the nucleus accumbens in rats. They put them in a cage, and as you see here, that there's a little paddle. Well, that paddle was hooked up to an electric current. And every time the rat would go over and touch the paddle, an electrical charge went through it and would shock the rat. So these two scientists said, what they should do is withdraw. Because remember I told you that part of the hypothalamus is that we want to avoid pain. So that's what they thought would happen. But the very opposite thing happened. What they saw was that in the first minute or two that it took them to go over and explore and touch that paddle, they went over there, and then maybe a minute or two later they went back. But after just several shocks from that paddle, those rats went back 700 times in an hour. In fact, they drove themselves to exhaustion and didn't eat and didn't drink because getting that stimulation from that electricity into the nucleus accumbens was their greatest motivation and drive. And so that was the beginning of the scientists beginning to see what the addiction cycle was. And that is where the nucleus accumbens, along with other tissues, it's not just this one, but this was a key one, that when it is stimulated, there is a release of dopamine that floods the brain. And if you remember, I mentioned dopamine as a neurotransmitter is something that gives us a sense of pleasure a sense of exhilaration when it's overly produced. And it's more than just pleasure. What scientists have found out with dopamine is that what really perpetuates this addictive cycle is that dopamine creates desire. It's that 
in your mind connected with the memory of that stimulation is the pleasure, but it's also this drive. I want that again. I want to go back to this. So that is where it is called our pleasure center. And I want you to think of that key word, desire. So let's put this all together. Remember, as we started our talk, of authority. The authority that God has in his kingdom. The highest power over the lower power. Do you see that those are parallel in this order of authority? That even in the way that God created us, in our control center, in our mind, that we have the frontal lobe, which is the higher power of the brain. And our limbic system is the lower power. Now, what I find interesting is this isn't just something that people talk about spiritually because I've read in different spiritual writings that there's higher powers and lower powers. But actually, in science today, the frontal lobe is termed the higher power of the brain. And the limbic system is considered the lower powers, the lower passions. So let's look at this slide that summarizes it. In our higher power of our frontal lobe, you see we have our judgment, our reason, our intellect, our spirituality, our morality, and the will. In the frontal lobe, we have our legal system, all the laws that are to govern our being. Now, in the lower powers of the limbic system, I just want to review this with you. That's our emotion center, our affections. It's our pleasure center. It's our hunger, our thirst, our mating, our protective um, desire, freedom from movement, for movement, of movement, and our avoidance of pain. We'll summarize it, and let's say the limbic system is where our desires are. And with that desire is from the limbic system is where we have large amounts of dopamine that continue to push us to certain desires. Does that make sense? So we have the higher powers over the lower powers. The frontal lobe is the one that has our laws. So as we look at this picture, I want to ask you this question. If your mind is your control center, and Satan is wanting to capture your control room, there's going to be a specific part that he's going to go over, that he's going to attack. And what would that be? What is your throne room that needs to be conquered? Because anyone that wants to conquer a kingdom, they're going for the king. They're going for the head. So you can say that your throne room is your frontal lobe. Your frontal lobe. Why? Because that's your judgment center, your reason, your spirituality. It is where you make decisions based on the will, the function of the will. So we, we've determined now that your frontal lobe is your throne room. But who sits on the throne? Who is the king of your frontal lobe? And as we review what we've already gone over, the functions of the frontal lobe, 
The king is someone, if you remember, I put the definitions up here. Let's review them again. The definitions of a king is someone who's a ruler. They have authority, power. They make decisions. They enforce those decisions. They are the highest power. So as we look at the functions of the frontal lobe, who is the king in that list? It's got to be the will. So we can say that we have king will that sits on our throne. And that is who is going to be the one to go after. So king will has some basic functions. The will is the decision center, the spring of all our actions. What we need to understand is the power of the will, the right actions of the will. Because if you do not have a will making right decisions, your life is going to be misguided. It is the, <clears throat> the will that is one of the biggest factors in character development. Because character development comes from every choice you make. And that stems from the will. But just because we have information, just because we know what is right, we don't have power to do it. What's important is that we have the power to do what we know is right. And that comes from the will. It is the will that is the governing power, sending actually an electrical force through the whole body to obey its commands. So would you say that knowing how to strengthen your will in the right directions is the key to everything in your life and making sure that it is not weakened in any way? All right. So... We have king will. Is he the only one, the only part of the brain that's going to have a part in making a decision? Think of a worldly government. Every ruler has advisors. And so we can think of everything else that is around the will of the way that our brain functions as the advisors that influence what the will does. So, just think about things in your life. And, and I want you to think about it now, but from this point on, it's my desire that for the rest of your life, you always ask yourself, why do I make this decision? What influenced me to think this way or to make this behavior? I've put, I've put a list together and this isn't inclusive or exclusive, but it's some of the big things that I thought of that influence our decisions. Your senses, and we all know what our senses are. In fact, I've read a statement that I think is very powerful. It says, guard well the senses because they are the avenue to the soul. What that means is guard what goes into your ears, guard what goes into your eyes, guard what it affects your, your touch, your sensation of, of touch, your taste, because all of these are avenues that go into who you are. Guard them. Be careful where, where they're getting input. What about our emotions? 
Do you find that when you have an emotion like anger or fear, that you act different than if you feel secure, that you feel loved, that you feel happy? So our emotions and our feelings are going to make a big impact on what our will does. What about experience? Just like the little child when he gets touched that hot stove and he's like, oh, I'm never doing that again. So, you know, people have that saying, burned once, you know, I'm not going there again. So we want to back off and not do certain things because of past experiences. What about peer pressure? I think with peer pressure, we think of it with young people that they're the only ones influenced by peer pressure. But I think that the desire to be like everyone else and the desire to be accepted is one of the biggest driving forces in our life. We do not like to be different. We do not like to be um, out of place and feel abnormal. Now, of course, you can say, oh, yes, that there's... There's kids that rebel and they wear a mohawk and they color their hair all different colors. We see it in our youth today. And even getting into some of our older people, they're tattooing themselves, they, they're piercing themselves, they're making themselves stand out. So, you know, it's not just that we want to be like everybody else, but sometimes well, we want to be different. But really... Someone that is wanting to be different, they're really wanting to be like others that accept them. They want to fit in somewhere. Knowledge. Knowledge has an incredible power. In fact, that's why many of us will listen to a health lecture. Because when we hear all of the things that happen because we smoke cigarettes, it impacts our mind and it motivates us to make better decisions. Our habits. The way that you were raised, if you have a certain culture, if you were raised in um, a European country compared to a Latin American country, there's different cultures. And so the habits that you form make a difference on what your will is going to choose to do. Now, the next one's interesting. Do you ever think about how your environment affects your decisions? If you are in a peaceful setting in nature and it's quiet and there's an eagle soaring over and a, and a brook babbling down the, the stream and it's the perfect temperature and you can hear the birds, are your thoughts different than if you're in the middle of a crowded city and you're looking at billboards and everyone's honking horns and different things are going on? Or you're walking down a mall and you're looking at the different models and different people and the stimulation going on. Every environment that we're in is going to be forming different thoughts and different behavior choices in our brain. So we need to be careful what our environment is. I think we could sum it all up. That God has his angels and Satan has his angels. And this is our spiritual battle. In the Bible, we're told that 
we do not have a warfare against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle against powers of darkness. And sometimes, whether you're in the most perfect environment, but there's an internal thing going on. So our will has pressure, and I want to call it pressure even from God, because God is longing to have us find him and find happiness. But we have the enemy who also is with driving force trying to break our hold on God. As I look at this list, and if you've taken notes, and maybe you want to add to them, the reason I want you to pay attention to these, because they influence every action you have. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he tells us, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. It's much easier to criticize somebody else. It's very easy to see the faults in other people. But what the Bible says is, look at yourself. And so when you look at this list that I've given you here, whenever you're having an issue, I want you to stop and contemplate, examine yourself. Why did I do this? Why do I feel this way? And sometimes you might not have an answer. But this is where you want to say to God, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any evil way in me. Lord, I don't understand why I'm feeling this way. I know it's not right. I just don't feel right. Will you show me what's going on? Show me these things in my life that I need to correct. Show me where I'm lacking that I'm making these wrong decisions. So it's important to always examine yourself. Why am I making the decisions I'm, I'm making? We talked about this three-pound mass, the brain, the incredible human mind, and all its functions. Why is it so incredible with its intellectual development, its power to reason? We can have vision, not eyesight vision, but the vision to see in the future, to look at things that are happening now, and to project where you want to be to look from the past and say, look where you've been, and to see a course, and to make changes in your life, to develop your, plan, your, your life. That's an incredible power that God has given us, the power of creativity, to put different things together. But of all the things that God has given us in our mind, the greatest thing that he has given us is the power to worship. And with that power to worship, he gave us freedom of choice. And we have two different powers, the power of God on high, our creator, and his enemy, Satan, who are looking for your worship and wanting to direct your freedom of choice in, in either direction. So I want to ask you, what value do you put on your mind? How important is it to you that you take care of your mind? Think about this. As you think about the value of your brain, now some people don't really care about what car they drive. You want something dependable and that it has good mileage. I've been looking at the most expensive cars in the universe for the last few years, and I've always put up 
the Veyron Bugatti because I had read that, that that was the most expensive car in the world. And last year, it was $2.7 million. Well, I was looking up what the most expensive car is this year. And actually, I don't know how I missed it, but the Lamborghini is the most expensive car. That has 750 horsepowers, it goes from zero to 60 miles per hour in 2.8 seconds, and it reaches its top speed of 221 miles per hour in 10 seconds. And the price that comes with it is four and a half million dollars. So as I looked at that, I thought, well, if I had four and a half million dollars to spend on a car, I think I would want it to be able to get me from here to heaven. It would have to be very, very powerful and important. But just think about that. A car worth four and a half million dollars. The most expensive car in this world. I want to ask you a deeper question. Do you know what the most expensive vehicle in the universe is? Well, let me give you a scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, we're told... For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, such as $4.5 million, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now, if you think about that, do you think that you're the most expensive vehicle in the world? There are angels in heaven that have not fallen there are angels in heaven that do not have a closet full of things that they never want anybody else to see. And each one of us have our closets. But do you realize you're the most expensive vehicle? Because the angels that have never fallen were not paid for by the blood of Jesus. That makes us more precious than anything in all of creation. So no matter who you are, even if you're the worst sinner, you must understand that that makes you more precious because God's blood, his own blood, was shed to redeem you. But let's go back and look at this car, this expensive car. Every car, even if it's not this expensive, comes with an owner's manual. Now, I've never had an expensive vehicle like this, but even in my cars, I, I've had Toyotas, I right now have a Prius, and it's very different. But I want to look at that manual because I want my car to last. I don't want to have to keep buying new cars. And so I'm going to have pride in my car. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to change the oil. I want to make sure my tires are working right and the fluid's working because the better I take care of my car, the longer it's going to last and the smoother it's going to run. So our vehicles that we drive, we take care of. What about this vehicle, our bodies? You know, as I watch people, as a physician, you know, I'm always dealing with people's health and their habits. I find that people really take care, better care of their body than they take care of their own health. But we have been given an owner's manual. 
And God has given us proven principles in the Bible of how to take care of this body he has given us. So as I mentioned at the beginning, God does care about our health. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Know ye not that you, you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are God's temple. Isn't that important? He wants to abide in this home. And then there's this very solemn warning. There's, there's some powerful things in the scripture. There's very encouraging words. But this last part of verse 16 should shake all of us. Because God says to us, If any man defile the temple of God, this temple, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So God wants you to know that he expects you to take care of this vehicle that he has given you. And so why is the frontal lobe so important in this vehicle? Why is it of prominence? Not only as we've talked about it medically and science-wise, but do you know that even in the Bible, it's of prominence? Let's look at some of the verses. Well, before we get to the verses, I want to talk to you just a few things, key, key points about the frontal lobe. It is 40% of the entire brain that communicates with all of the rest of the brain and the body. It distinguishes man from animals more than any other parts of the brain anatomy. And it has the highest control over all the other activities of the nervous system, especially the hypothalamus. Remember, the hypothalamus is where our instincts, instinctive drive is. So the control of the frontal lobe should be over all those drives. It is where we have problem solving, where we take, have inhibitions, decision-making, and even empathy. In summary, we could say that the frontal lobe has to do with our personality and our character. And so now I want to look at what the scripture says about our frontal lobe. When we go into Revelation, it's mentioned in a couple places, but particularly of importance is in Revelation 14. And when we look at verse 1, John, when he was in vision, he saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with the lamb was 144,000 people. And guess what they had? It says they have his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, that scripture where it's talking about the forehead is really talking about the frontal lobe. God's name, his character, is in their frontal lobe. Their vision of God has been implanted back into their mind. But not everyone has that. We're told in Revelation 13, and it's throughout that chapter, it's not just in one verse, but we're told that he, the beast power that's being described in Revelation 13, will cause all of the world, except for those that are sealed by God, to have a mark, or that mark represents a name, character, in their foreheads. So the forehead is the character development 
of every one of us. And character development is important. Why? Because as we see on the slide, character development determines our destiny. So as we come to the conclusion of part one of addiction, the physiology of addiction, what I want you to remember that in our control center of our brain, we have the frontal lobe that's the highest power. And in our frontal lobe, we have our will that is the governing force. It's like the rudder on a ship that guides where that whole massive ship goes. And in our frontal lobe is where we make a decision for eternity. And so the importance and significance cannot be underestimated. We must care for our brain and for our frontal lobe and learn how to make right decisions. And in part two, we're going to continue with this idea and go a little bit deeper. Thank you for joining us today. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.